0: Father, we do uh, thank you that you have given us a reason to sing of our love to you and to sing with joyful hearts of your love to us and our response to you and obedience and praise and worship. We do know that that goes far beyond the songs that we sing to the lives that we live throughout the week and the, the reality of our thoughts and our affections and the things that we pursue and the things that we do. And so we pray that our worship as your gathered people would be the worship reflected in your scattered people throughout the week. And we do pray now that we would express that worship as we hear you speak to us in your word, as we hear the voice, O Christ, of you, as it were through the written words on these pages that we have in the Bible. And would you, Holy Spirit, help us to understand and to respond in a way that glorifies our Savior and bears witness to our trust in Christ and to our changed life, where we can say, behold, all things have become new. And so to that end, we pray and we commit our time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're finally coming back in to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, although don't turn there yet. We're going to turn first to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, After a few weeks of preparing, or maybe three weeks, two or three weeks of preparing, what Peter is going to address uh, in chapter 3 of his epistle, namely, the relationship of the husband and wife, and more specifically, the relationship of authority and submission in those particular gendered roles. Culture is constantly bombarding us with messages of independence, self-power, self-will, self-esteem, self-love and a priority on personal rights. In the pursuit of your own path, often without the regard to counsel of the counsel of others, follow your own heart is a mantra of our culture we're often without a purpose that extends beyond self-fulfillment and so we're by- bombarded with these messages and our flesh loves it because that resonates with something deep inside of our fallenness deep inside our fallenness the idea of independence autonomy apart from god and that is largely what we saw as undergirding and under as the foundation of feminism That has so affected our culture and the roles that God has called us to. These gendered roles of male and female, husband and wife and within the church that are for our flourishing. And yet that stands in opposition to this tone of our culture. And into this culture of self-fulfillment and self-love comes the gospel that calls us to just the opposite. To die to self. To deny self as an independent motivator for all of our actions to deny self as an independent worker apart from reference to God and his work in Christ it confronts our sin and it makes us face the reality of our guilt and it makes us face the reality of our accountability before God it calls us to come face to face with the glory of God and realize that he is the center and the ultimate one in the universe and not we ourselves to realize it's about him and it's not about us to acknowledge that he is the supreme authority in the universe, not us. He is the true fount of all glory and pleasure, not us, not this world, and not our own selfish pursuits. That is a countercultural message. And then he calls us to submission to his truth. Submission to his word to realign our views of the world, of ourselves, with what is reality as it's revealed on the pages of Scripture. And we're called throughout life to this lifelong pursuit of readjusting our thinking. Scripture calls that renewing our mind. Shedding the vestiges of our fallenness and of the world out of which we have been called. And bringing our thinking more in line to the mind of Christ which we have revealed in the pages of Scripture. To be called from the thinking that is marked by darkness to that which is dominated by the light and sets us free but it requires great humility. And it requires humility because the truth so often confronts us. It confronts our natural way of thinking. It confronts our wayward affections. Our most deeply held desires of the flesh. And so often our most cherished idols. And when that comes, becomes exposed by the light, then we have an internal conflict. And one of the most fundamental challenges that comes to us and the truth of God's word is in relation to one of the most fundamental aspects of our humanity and that is our sexuality and even more our gendered roles of male and female and how God has designed that for flourishing and for joy and for happiness in this world as I mentioned we have over the last few weeks considered the, the rise, the ideology and the consequences of what is known as feminism and its influence on both our culture and subtly the way of the thinking of not only the world, but also within the church. Particularly what is known as feminist or Christian feminism, which is also known as egalitarianism. And so this is an affront on the blessing of God on gendered relationships. And we've noted that at the heart of feminist ideology is this Idea, these ideas, that authority is inherently a tool used for oppression, and that the idea of submission is inherently in the concept itself one of inferiority. That submission invites oppression, and that implies authority as being superior. It also ...operates out of an understanding that a person's value is measured by worldly achievement... ...and individualism and autonomy. And autonomy is placed as the highest priority. And then we were confronted with that recently this week... ...and you've, you've heard the discussions about abortion. No longer is the child inside of a mother's womb... ...considered merely a piece of flesh, undeveloped and unimportant and without value... Now it is without value even outside of the womb. Even being born, the governor of Virginia said that it can be resuscitated while the physician and the mother decide whether they want to keep the baby. This is infanticide. And it is the highest expression of autonomy and the end of feminist ideology. And what is it that justifies that kind of action? Well... This is what they proclaim on the news. It is my body, it is my rights, I owe obligation to nothing and have value in nothing else other than my decision of what is best for my purposes and goals in my life. And if that means killing this child, then so be it, because my happiness and my priorities are the greatest end to which I pursue. So that's that's where it lends. And now that's in the extreme form. Not everybody who identifies with feminism goes that far. But that is at the root that is inherent in its ideology. Moreover, a tenet of feminism is that the idea of male headship has had a long history of patriarchy which stands at the root of all injustice and oppression of women and it must be rejected and destroyed in every form that it can be found. And that's what we've looked at over the last couple weeks. And in one sense, feminism was absolutely correct in identifying injustices that needed and some that still need to be addressed. There were many wrongs against women that needed to be righted. There was abuse. There was inequality of pay, opportunity, and rights. There was a general attitude of inferiority of the female sex. There was then a lack of the dignity that God has afforded to a true understanding of femininity. And so those things were wrong, and those things did need to be addressed and do wherever they're found. This good desire, however, to right these wrongs was largely built on a skewed foundation and located the problem in gender distinction and the very concepts of authority and submission themselves rather than the abuses of those things, and that is the fundamental error. Rather than to say the abuse of male authority is what's wrong that needs to be confronted. It says the very idea of maleness is wrong and needs to be eliminated. And that's the issue. And in contrast to this, Scripture presents then gender distinction and the roles of authority and submission as both reality, it is created order, it is God's design, you can't get around it, we can fight it, but we can't eliminate it because it is what it is. And at the heart of God's goodness in creation, that gender stands at the heart of God's goodness in creation. It's a reflection of his own ordered relationships within the Godhead, as Paul makes explicitly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's necessary to order, unity, harmony, and flourishing in the world, and especially in the home. Now last week we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and the establishment of gendered roles in the creation of Adam and Eve. And then at Genesis 3, in the breakdown of these roles, which did not eliminate them, but it did introduce abuse and complexity into the church and into the home and into the culture and into our society. And every culture and society hence. Then we briefly considered three key New Testament passages in which the issue of ordered gendered roles within the church were addressed and grounded. And this was the important point. If nothing else came out of that, this would be the point to remember that it is grounded not in culture, but was grounded in creation. It was not grounded in the fall in Genesis 3, but the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Again, the fall complicated things it did not eliminate God's design. We did note cultural context in which that truth was applied, which is unique to that culture. However, the principle being applied applied is universal. And it is a part of God's basic design of humanity in his image. Now, This morning we will consider the same ordered relationship except within the home between the husband and wife. And we're going to do this briefly by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 33, and then we'll go to the main passages where we've been headed this whole time, is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, and we'll touch on that this morning and then finish it next week. But let's look first at the ideal pattern, the ideal pattern for gendered relationships, Christ and the church living in love. So go ahead and turn over to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And you're familiar with this passage, and were we going through the book of Ephesians, we'd spend... No doubt weeks in this passage, but we're going to look at it briefly this morning. One for which you're familiar. Let me let me read it uh, for us. Read along with me, and then we'll, we'll point, point out a few highlights. I'll begin with me, actually, in verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody... ...with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to to their husbands in everything... "'Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, "'and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, "'having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, "'that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, "'having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, "'but that she should be holy and blameless. "'So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies, "'and he who loves his own wife loves himself.'" For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also the church. Because we are members of his body. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless... Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, the key to this whole passage is actually in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. This is a demonstration in the relationship of the husband and wives that he has laid out for us here A manifestation of one who is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Who is under the control of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit alone provides the spiritual motivation of the gospel. The Spirit alone provides an understanding of the grace of God in Christ, of redemption, of forgiveness of sin, that can motivate this kind of living for both the male and the female, the husband and the wife. The Holy Spirit alone provides the spiritual power to renew the mind, to shut off the thinking of culture and be conformed to the thinking of God in his word. The Holy Spirit alone is the one that helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and can subdue the will to walk in righteousness as defined by God's word. And so these are, at the front, we might acknowledge, only able to be fulfilled To one who is regenerate, who has received new life, who can hear God's word and respond rightly to it. Otherwise, many will hear that word of authority and submission and respond with scorn, with hatred, with ridicule, with anger. But the obedient Christian will hear and want to respond because the life is being brought under the mastery of Christ through his Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit, this isn't we're not going to spend time on that, but being sp- filled with the Spirit is a command, and it's not some mystical experience that you have out in the woods when you and God are alone listening to the bubbling creek. It is, in fact, a life. That is brought under the authority of Christ in obedience to his word. It's having the word of Christ richly dwell within you, guiding, directing, subduing, training you to be a man and a woman of righteousness. That's the life that is being filled or is filled with the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, Paul begins his first application of this being filled with the Spirit outside of the the attitude of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the relationship of the wife and the husband. And this is, for one reason, a reflection of culture. Because in this kind of household code language, this kind of of, uh, instruction... It is common to, to start with the submissive one and then to address the one in authority. And so you'll see that as a consistent pattern throughout scripture, even here. The wife to the husband, the children to the parents, the slave to the master. And so that's where he begins here. And he says, coming into this, that this is an application as well, of not only of being filled with the Spirit, but of verse 21, to be subject, of being subject... To one another in the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. Now you'll notice in some of your Bibles you'll have the words be subject and it's italicized. Uh, what that means when you see an italicized word if that's in your translation. It simply means that that word isn't actually there in the original language. It's implied. And it's, it's to help the, the reader in our case of English to follow the flow of thought and the intent of the author. And so here it is in verse 22, that verb over in verse 21 is carried over in its idea to verse 22. And it is the idea of being subject, being subject, being subject to one another. And again, the first application of that is to begin with wives and husbands. Why does he begin there? Well, let me suggest to you at least a couple of reasons. One is because this is the most intimate expression of human relationship. This is of all of the relationships where this being filled with the Spirit and being subject to one another is going to find its greatest reflection is in this most intimate of human relationships, that between the husband and wife. Secondly, because it is the relationship specifically designed by God to reflect his covenant love for his people. That says something pretty significant then about marriage. It is of all of the relationships, the one that is held up most preeminently to reflect God's love for his people. God's love for his people, Israel. Christ's love for his church. God's love for his church in Christ. And thirdly, because it is the place in which this principle of authority and submission finds its most stable and significant witness to the gospel. However, while marriage stands at the head, the same general principle of authority and submission, as we already noted, is to be carried over in a variety of aspects of relationships within the home and within the world, but this one stands at the head. Now, some would argue, in verse 21, that the idea of being subject to one another in the fear of Christ eliminates the role of authority and submission, That to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ speaks of an equality in which there is no inherent idea of submission or authority and of leading and of following. Now let me just begin by noting why that is not the case. And let me just give you several lines. One, it's nonsensical to say that the language of one another requires identical actions. Now this could be illustrated in one way, merely... Uh, Through other one another language forgiving one another does not mean that each equally forgive because one is the offended party and one is the forgiving party The the point there being it doesn't require identical action Do not murder one another or do not be angry with one another or any of these one another languages requires one who gives and one who receives one put it this way the Christian virtue here is not to submit to those, or not to, is not to eliminate submission, but to submit to those whom I ought to submit to. In other words, to submit to those to whom I ought to submit. Being subject to one another, in other words, does not distinguish roles. It simply addresses the attitude at which we fulfill those roles and obligation to one another to consider one another as more important than ourselves. Secondly, the reverse is nonsensical. Christ does not submit to the church. Christ never submits to the church. Parents are never told to submit to their children. Masters are never expected to submit to their slaves. Each one of those relationships implies and even demands authority and submission. Again, each of these are to serve one another. That is to place the needs of the other above self, above our own, to serve in a way that places the other's interest first and that eliminates self-agenda in, exor- in the exercise of our roles, but it does not eliminate the role itself. Thirdly, husbands are never commanded to submit to their wives, but to exercise headship. Never is a husband commanded to submit to his wife. And fourthly and lastly, and this is the most important, is that headship, which is here assigned to the husband, is a headship That is exercised and maintained as a reflection of the headship of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he uses this same term over in verse 22 of chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, he is far above, in verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. To say that we are equal to Christ in his glory And to say that we are equal in Christ in a shared kind of authority is false, it is wrong. And yet that is the kind of headship that is reflected, Christ's headship over his church, that here is to be reflected in the home. All creation is put into ordered subjection under Christ And one day, as he says in verse 10, everything will be summed up under Christ, things in the heavens and on the earth. He alone is the king of kings and the ruler of that kingdom under the Father. And marriage is to reflect this reality of an ordered headship. It is, in fact, a reflection of the kingdom of God and Christ who is head over all things. As the wife voluntarily submits to the ordered authority of the husband and the children to parents and slaves to masters. Ultimately. This is. God's ordered and good design. Now that is of course not to say. As I'll mention later that. The husband is equal to Christ. And is that we'll see in 1st Peter chapter 3. And glory and majesty and so forth. It is to say. There is a reflected order of relationship. However. That is in the husband as the head. And in the wife Who is like the church so here he begins then with these ordered roles with a demonstration again of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit wives be subject to your own husbands now we're not going to do a full uh, we're not going to take all the details of this but let me make a few point, high points here for both the wife and the husband first of all is this Notice that submission of the wife is to her own husband. This is not submission in general. This is not a wife to all husbands and all who have the the role of a husband. It is to her husband. It is to her husband. It is specific submission in a particular relationship. There is an exclusivity of relationship between a husband and wife to one another. So he's specifically addressing one wife and one husband. The one husband who is to exercise headship over his one wife, and the one wife who is to display submission to her one husband. Number two, note that submission is ultimately to the Lord and not to the husband. And this is absolutely crucial. Verse 22, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, as to the Lord. The submission to the husband is merely the expression of obedience and submission of will to Christ. And that is absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. That, that eliminates every excuse or every complaint or every opposition that rises up in the heart of some. My husband isn't worthy. You don't know what else he is. Or my husband isn't doing what he should be doing. My husband has acted wrongly against me. And the answer to that, in one basic form, is that it's not your husband, ultimately, whom you're obeying. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. It is not his worthiness. It is the worthiness of Christ that has called you to this, to glorify him. It is submission to the Lord. Note, thirdly, that submission is modeled after the church's submission to her head, Christ. Verses 23 and 24. The husband is head of the wife. Christ is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Again, just a few points of that. Submission, as noted earlier, is a command from the Lord to the wife, but it is a voluntary act of obedience on the part of the wife, and it is not something that can be forcefully imposed by the husband. So sometimes you may joke, or you've heard it joke, Submit to me, woman. Right? Right? I'm sure I'm guilty of that. Trish isn't here, so I can say that. And and, and sometimes that's said in jest, but but there's oftentimes that the attitude is present, not in jest. That the authority of the husband is, and this call to the wife's submission is is brought on her as a burden by the husband. But that is not the case here. Submission is a voluntary act of obedience of the wife out of her faith in Christ. It is submission to the Lord. It is a relationship to our understanding of salvation and the lordship of Jesus Christ over his church. And again, as noted earlier, the submission of the wife to the husband is to the church. Uh, as the church to Christ is not an absolute parallel. The husband is not perfect as Christ nor does he possess possess the inherent glory of Christ. The parallel is the reflected role of the headship of Christ to his church and the relationship of the husband and wife. It is to be reverent. This submission is to be voluntary. It is to be reverent. He says that at the end in verse 33. See that to it that she respects her husband. That is fears or reveres is the word. Her husband. And it is to be out of love. It is to reflect The kind of love that the church has to Christ, a humble and gracious love. The greater weight, however, here falls, of course, on the husband. Notice that the wife is addressed in verses 23 through 24. The husband is addressed in verses 25 through 32. The greater weight falls here, not on the submission of the wife, but on the Christ-like love of the husband. Again, let me just make a few observations of what we read. First, this love of the husband is to be a sacrificial love. It is an authority that is inherent in the role and yet it is an authority that is to be used to serve and not to make demands. A great illustration of this is John 13. You're familiar with it. The example of Christ who washed the disciples' feet as an example of hub, the humble, serving, self-sacrificing love that was ultimately going to be demonstrated as he went to the cross and gave himself up to cleanse them of their greater need, cleansing of sin, the provision of atonement. He who had all authority in heaven and earth, he was the son of God incarnate, And yet he was one who was among them, or he was among them as one who serves. That's the example of the love and the serving and sacrificial love of a husband. It is not authority to demand, not an authority to control, it is an authority to serve and to protect and to care for and to be self sacrificing. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. It is a sanctifying love that he might in verse. 26, sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of the water with the word, present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. It is a sanctifying love. The love of the husband should have as the end and the exercise of his role the spiritual good and the spiritual joy of his wife. The spiritual good and the spiritual joy of his wife. Her holiness. It should be the kind of love... That leaves his wife at the end of their marriage relationship as more holy and more like Christ, not less like him. To love Christ more, that is more cleansed, that is more like him. Thirdly, it is a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and a nourishing love. He is to exercise in this authority and this headship a care that models his own care for himself. So husbands ought to love their own wives. Verse 28 is their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Simply put, it is that he is to have a preoccupation not with how his wife is meeting his needs but how he is caring for her needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In the totality of the relationship. Men, that's what it means to love your wife. That's what it means to have authority. It means that you have been placed in a responsibility of self-sacrificing love, a nourishing love, a sanctifying love, a caring love, a self-denying love that places her first, her needs first. And it is finally to be an intimate love, a deep unity of heart and companionship of life and of body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh the two shall become one flesh that is a comprehensive term it does not mean less than as a matter of fact it is the physical relationship the sexual relationship of a husband and wife that is the unique bond of marriage that's what sets marriage off from every other relationship that you can have you can have intimacy companionship closeness in every other relationship but there is not a sexual component to it there is in the husband and wife, there should be. That is that is a consummating of that marriage. It's what sets it off from every other kind of relationship. But it is also a joining not only of the body, but it is a joining of the life together, two people who share every aspect of life together. Now husbands should make submission then easy and desirable, and women should make leading a joy. That's the ideal. And together, the complementary nature of gendered roles should produce an environment of love, unity, harmony that reflects obedient love of the church for Christ and anticipate, anticipates the beauty, harmony, joy, and flourishing that will characterize the new heavens and the new earth. That's what our Christian home should look like. That's the ideal at which we aim and what we pursue. It's the model that we seek to conform to as obedient believers. And though it will never be perfect in this life, that is what we shoot for. However, what do you do when one of the spouses is not pursuing this ideal? What do you do when one of the spouses does not have the Holy Spirit? Does not understand the gospel? Is still in spiritual darkness? Does not have the spiritual motivation, the spiritual power, the spiritual understanding of God and Christ and redemption to compel and shape obedience? What do you do then? Well, this is when it gets more complicated and it gets more difficult. But what's important to note is it doesn't change the ideal for either spouse, nor does it change God's design and Christ's command. It complicates it. It makes it harder. And that's the second part. The ideal is the harmonious love of Christ for his church and the church for Christ. But then you have the difficult problem, submission to a disobedient spouse. And that's going to take us over to First Peter chapter 3. So turn there, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look here at just the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me read it first. In the same way, in this, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste, and respectful, you could say reverent. There's that word again that's translated respectful, reverent, fearful. Respectful behavior. Now, that little phrase there at the beginning, in the same way or likewise, is introducing a new section. But it's referring back not only to the submission that has already been called for from Christians to civil authority in government, from slaves to masters, even those who are unreasonable. It calls us back to the example of Christ. In whose footsteps we are to follow. Who submitted himself to the care of the father. As he gave himself up to the unrighteous judgment of men. Who bore our sins in his body. Verse 24 on the cross. So that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Who healed us by his wounds. Who sought us though we were sheep continually straying. In the same way. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. It is to be a submission then that models the very life of Christ and his atoning love for us. And it is in this way that the wife follows the example of Christ, proves the gospel, and displays the glory of Christ's life in you. And hopefully win the unbelieving to Christ. Now again, why is Peter addressing wives here and not husbands? He will address husbands in verse 7 and we'll get to that. But he begins with wives. Why? Again, because he always begins with the one who has the submissive role. And so it is here, the wives then being submissive to their own husbands. Again, reflecting the ordered relationships of authority and submission, which are consistent throughout. We didn't turn there, but Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and here in Peter, 1 Peter 3. Now what distinguishes Peter's instructions here from the rest is the fact that the submission he calls for is not under the ideal conditions of two believing sinners who, who though guilty and not yet perfect or yet pursuing the ideal. He is addressing one who has the spirit and one who is disobedient to the word. He's addressing the difficult circumstance of submission where there is two people who are unequally yoked unequally yoked this is then a challenge that some of you know personally and some of you know others who know personally he says identifies these husbands as those who are disobedient to the word now while it's possible in the larger principle and would certainly apply to this believing husbands who are not demonstrating godliness that's not what he's referring to here here, in this phrase, disobedient to the word, he is referring specifically to unbelieving husbands. Unbelieving husbands. We won't trace this out, but each time this term is used in the New Testament, it's a reference to those who have not obeyed the gospel. And that's how it's used the two other times, actually, in First Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Speaking of unbelieving Jews, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble. Why? Because they are, here's our term, disobedient to the word. And to this they were also appointed. Speaking of unbelievers, he'll do the same thing in verse 20. When he speaks of those who were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Those who perished in the flood. he will use it again in verse 17 of chapter 4. Those who do not obey the gospel of God. And so it is here with these husbands who are disobedient to the word are those who are unbelieving. This is an unequally yoked situation. A believing wife and an unbelieving husband. And in fact... Its other uses indicate that these situations may imply more than simple unbelief, but even hostility or open animosity of the husband toward the gospel, toward the faith of the wife. And this is exacerbated culturally at that time by the fact that it was the common conduct or practice for wives or the common expectation to adopt the religion of the husband. And the gospel itself at that time, remember, he's writing to a people who are scattered because of the gospel. Those who are under the persecution of the world for the gospel. It was often received with mockery and scorn by many in the general culture. And here, it's implied, at least, is most likely here in the home. Listen to one ancient attitude of this by a writer that, of this time named Plutarch. He says, a wife should not acquire her own friends This is from a work called Advice to Brides. A a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. Which is exactly what, in the early years, Christianity was. It was a dangerous or strange superstition. And this would provide then much conflict in the home. Since the wife who is called to submit could not submit to her husband's desires for false worship. She could not disobey Christ. And it goes even deeper than this. Another writer noted that because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religious forces, disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family but to society. Society. Christians were frequently blamed as the cause of public calamity because they introduced a new God upsetting the religious status quo of the empire. So now you have this wife's faith of one who does not share that faith, who indeed sees that, that faith as a threat to his own rights as a husband and the cultural expectations in which they lived, as one who is threatening the very stability of a culture and a society. It could be an embarrassment to the husband. He could be seen as one who could not control his own home and could not control his own wife. So this is, a, this is indeed a distressing situation in which Paul is addressing the command to be submitted. To be submitted. Now the phrase, even if, you'll see that in the middle of the verse, even if any of them are disobedient... To the word indicates that maybe some couples to whom he's writing were not unequally yoked, but the alcohol to submission is the same in either case. In either case. But here's the important point, and this has to be grasped it's this, and I mentioned it earlier. A husband's unbelief in failure and failure in headship does not abrogate or annul or rescind, get rid of the wife's responsibility and submission. And nor does the wife's failure and submission, we would add, abrogate or annul or rescind the man's responsibility and headship. There are some cases where it's the other way. It's a man married to an unbelieving wife. And that is difficult as well. Again, these things complicate it. They do not dissolve God's created order. And again, the obedience is to Christ, not to the husband and not to the wife, the spouse. So that she's called, even in this condition then, the wife is to be submissive to your own husband. And again, with fear and in reverence in verse 2. Now, let me note here. He says here in verse 2, uh, As they observe your pure or chaste, respectful behavior, a reverent behavior. This isn't referring to respectful and reverent behavior towards the husband. It is respectful or reverent behavior that finds its source in the relationship with Christ. It's following Christ's own example. Again, that is the key. While being reviled, in verse 23, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the attitude that is to be displayed in this submission is of a woman who has a deep reverence and trust for and in Christ and who is living clearly under his headship, under his rulership, under his authority. We'll look at that more next week. This is a wife who is enabled by the Holy Spirit to live this out. It's the only way that it can be... Lived out. This is a wife who, by the Spirit's power, displays a settled trust in God. This is one who says, I can bear up under this difficult circumstance because Christ, with whom I am united and whose Spirit I have, endured this even worse on my behalf. I can follow in his steps. As Christ trusted in the Father in the midst of being unrighteously treated, I will trust in the Father and in Christ as I endure these difficult situations of living in a home, in an intimate relationship of one who opposes and rejects, maybe even mocks and ridicules my love for Christ. So this is the fruit of a relationship with God, a sincere love and obedient faith. Now let me make a few observations here about this then the first one is this how much disobedience to the word must a wife endure how much disobedience to the word must the wife remain submissive and under how much should she stay in a physically abusive situation should she stay there until like Christ maybe she's even put to death is that what he means should she endure abuse to her children or in any way endanger herself and her children At what point is she not to submit to disobedience to the word? Well, let me give you just a few ideas here. One, he's not calling for wives to remain in situations where they are physically in danger. That is breaking of the law. In fact, a wife should leave that situation and the husband should be prosecuted according to the laws of the land. God is not calling to that. Remember, again, this is a voluntary submission. It's not a call to stay in the home and keep your children in a home where there's physical or sexual abuse to the children. They need to be removed. And again, that husband needs to be prosecuted for his crimes against God first and against the state. And those children should be removed. She is not called to stay in the home in that situation. She's not called and said, uh, to submit uh, to a man and to a husband who is inf- unfaithful, who is... Consumed with porn and strip clubs or adult other relationships of intimacy with a woman or an affair or anything of that kind. Divorce isn't commanded in that situation, but God is certainly knowing the difficulty of it, has allowed for divorce in that situation. She's not called to remain under that. She's not called to submit and to remain silent where there is any kind of criminal behavior. Any kind of criminal, abusive, or dangerous behavior. That's not what he's calling for. That's not what he's calling for. But as a caveat to that, I would only note this. Outside of noting the exceptions, we have to ask ourselves, and wives have to ask themselves, but then what is he calling? The example, again, is Christ. And really, anything other than those things. I can't live with my husband. He mocks me. He's unkind to me. He verbally berates me. Well, there's things to do and there's counsel to be had. I can't live with my husband because he doesn't want me to go to church or he gives me a hard time every time that I want to take the children to church. Those are things to be worked through. It is a high command that he's calling to, but what I would just want to note is he's not calling to anything whether there's physical abuse to the woman, to the wife, to the children, infidelity or any kind of criminal activity. Let's name another observation. This is not a tool, and it's not a justification or allowance for a husband, as we mentioned earlier, to force or demand obedience or to exercise authority in a domineering, abusive, or coercive way. Again, submission is voluntary. It's not forced. Authority never justifies its abuse. Speaking of the tyrannical husband, one author, Christopher Ash. In the book on marriage notes this. In marriage, this makes us dominating... Speaking of a tyrannical husband. In marriage, this makes us dominating, insistent on our own autonomous rights... To make our decisions and depose them on others. And in particular, our wives... It cannot be emphasized too strongly that the husband's headship is never to be insisted upon or enforced, whether by physical force or by emotional or psychological pressure. We are not to be domineering, to insist on our rights, let alone that we should have the more interesting, the less demanding, or the more highly praised lives. So it isn't a call that she submit to dangerous criminal abusive situations it is not a justification for a husband to get away with an abuse of his authority in any way thirdly it does not imply any kind of superior superiority on the husband's parts or inferiority on the wife's part authority does not imply superiority and strength nor does submission imply in for inferiority and weakness in fact it's quite the opposite The believing wife in this situation, as a matter of fact, is in fact the one who is spiritually wise and the unbelieving husband is spiritually a fool. It's not implying any kind of inferiority of wisdom or understanding. In fact, the one who's inferior in this situation is the husband himself. And yet the wife is called to submit. That can happen in many cases, even among believers, where there's a more mature wife, there's a more knowledgeable wife, a more intelligent wife, who is yet... Called to use all of those things to the service of her husband and to her home. In reality, the abuse of authority, in fact, does not display strength, but it displays weakness, it displays fear, and it displays smallness. So if the role of the husband is ever used to dominate, to demand, to force, to oppress, it does not show how strong that person is, it shows how small and how weak they are. It's never an excuse, never an excuse to mistreat your wife. In fact, not only is that the case, but the exercise of submission by the wife and the fear of God does not display weakness. It displays great strength. It displays depth of courage. It displays the true dignity of femininity And the honor of true femininity. It takes a strong woman. One who is great in faith. One who is strong in her walk with the Lord. Who has much moral courage and fortitude and dignity. To obey Christ in those difficult situations. Let me note another point here. A very important point of application. And I'm just going to summarize it. And this is this. And this is just kind of a footnote stepping back a little bit. The singular most important thing then for those who are unmarried, and let's just pull the car over on this for a bit, the single most important factor for any of you who are single to consider in a spouse is the reality of their faith and their character. The reality of their faith and their character. And this is, this is an implicit application and warning here. While it is likely that Peter is addressing wives who were already married, and most likely the situation is they were already in a married relationship. The wife got saved. They both heard the gospel somehow, or it's possible only one did. And the wife believed the gospel was saved, and the husband remained unbelieving, and now they're in an unequally yoked situation. That's most likely the case. But it happens enough times that people enter into this relationship, women do, because of inadequately considering the weight of the character and the reality of faith of the one with whom she's entering into this covenant and then is in a miserable and difficult situation that could have been avoided. And it's true, sometimes a woman thinks she's marrying a believer and he turns out not to be, or a godly man who turns out to be otherwise. But either case, once you're married... Young ladies, you are married to a man forever who is assigned the position of authority and headship in your home and who God calls you to submit to and subordinate yourself under. And if you enter into that relationship in an unequally yoked manner, you are assigning yourself to much, much difficulty. The only thing more difficult than being not married and wanting to be married is to be married to a husband with whom you are unequally yoked. That's worse. And divorce is not an option, unless there is, of course, those things which God has said that makes it possible. Infidelity, death, so forth. Or death wouldn't be divorce, but remarriage, but uh, infidelity or abandonment. So, that is a side application. But the most fundamental reality, then, of each person is your spiritual relationship to Christ. It touches on every aspect of life. And when that isn't in harmony and that isn't in unity within the home, it makes everything, decisions raising children, decisions about jobs, decisions of where to live, attitudes towards life, everything, even the possibility of unity and prayer and discussion and communicating and understanding, all of those are thwarted in this kind of situation. So this is a difficult situation. It's a difficult situation. And it's one in which the wife's attitude now, while she seeks to submit and to love her husband, while she seeks to honor him, while she seeks to live with a reverent and respectful behavior before Christ and to Christ, but demonstrated towards her husband as well, out of honoring him, being respectful to him, it now turns into one instead of the full enjoyment that God has designed, in which her heart is burdened and weighed down with his salvation. And so that's what he says, "...so that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives." So it's by common grace possible for some to maintain a generally good relationship where the unbelieving husband loves his wife and treats her well. However, even in the best of circumstances... You are unable to share the deepest part of who you are as a believer and will not know the union and relational intimacy at that utmost part. And for that soul then, for the woman, she, like Paul, who cries for the unbelieving Jews, how he weeps for them that they might be saved. And so it becomes one of evangelism. That silent weeping in the wife's heart that he might eventually one day be one without a word. And for those in this situation, God's grace is more than sufficient And Peter lays out that as a hope which might yet come. And he says this is going to happen through the evidence of a transformed life. And that's what we're going to look at next week. It's as they observe your chaste and your respectful behavior. Your pure and respectful behavior. This does not mean that the wife does not share the gospel and proclaim it. It means ultimately... That it is not by winning an argument or constant nagging. It is going to be the reality of a transformed life. That brings the power of the gospel into that home. And that the spirit of God will use hopefully to convict her husband. Of his rejection of that transforming one. That is displayed in his wife's new life. And will bring them to faith. And to repentance. But that's what we'll look at next week. For now know that this is. This is the glory of God's design. This is the beauty of a home in which there is authority, in which there is submission, in which there is great happiness when it's lived out rightly. And even when it's not, God provides more than abundant grace and upholds that wife with an unbelieving husband with mercy and kindness and the same kind of trust and hope that was demonstrated in the life of Christ himself. So let us pray and then we'll pick this up next week. Father, we thank you for your word and you address every aspect of our lives sufficiently, authoritatively through your word. And Lord, I know that there are some in our own congregation who are experiencing these things and who know the burden of it. You know sometimes the confusion of it and how to act and what to do. And I pray for those who do who do live under these circumstances, I pray that you would undergird them with your strength, that you, an understanding and an insight to your glory and grace and the gospel that at the deepest part of their soul upholds them and sustains them with joy and hope in the midst of it. And Lord, I do pray in those situations as well that the unbelieving spouse would, would see that power of a transformed life, the truth of the gospel, and repent and come to a true faith in you, O Christ. And for all of us, and for those of us who don't have that burden, but do have that daily call to live out the gospel in our homes, that we might do so with joy and faithfulness and obedience, and might display the glory and the wonder and the goodness of you, our God, and of the gospel, and the relationship of a husband and a wife and in our home. And to that end, we pray that we would be responsive and obedient to your spirit, and bring you much glory and honor. And it's in your name, O Christ, we pray, amen if you would stand with me as we close open up your hymnals to hymn number 513 we'll sing oh how he loves you and me we'll sing just verse one of this hymn number 513 Dear God, it is you who have called us, it is you who have given us life and grace, Lord. Life through your grace. Uh, We thank you for your gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, God, we pray that you would help us with these things that we've heard this morning. God, help us to be obedient to your word. Obedient to you, God. Call us to that, sustain us with your grace, and strengthen us in the pursuit of your glory. In your name we pray, amen.